Hi, this is Anna East Eden. You're listening to Hollywood and Beyond with your host, Stephen Brittingham. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome to Hollywood and Beyond, friends and listeners. This is your host, Stephen Brittingham. If you happen to walk into the main offices of Ewing Oil, located in the heart of downtown Dallas, Texas, a company founded by the legendary Jock Ewing, with sons J.R. and Bobby Ewing running the company. Chances are, if you were there to meet with the powerful J.R., you would be greeted by Sly Lovegren, his personal assistant and secretary. Likewise, if you were there to see younger brother Bobby, you would be greeted by Phyllis Wapner, his personal assistant and secretary. Good afternoon. Everything was so hectic this morning, I didn't get a chance to meet you. Well, Connie is ill. I'm filling in for her. My name is Phyllis. Phyllis. Welcome to Ewing Oil, Phyllis. Hi. Oh, I thought you'd still be at lunch. No, I've been back about a half hour. Any mail? It's on your desk. Thank you. Uh, Bobby, may I talk to you? Oh, sure. Uh, come on in the office. Well, you gave me this great title, executive assistant, and we have these great offices, and I make a wonderful salary, and and I don't have anything to do. You know, you are one of the most talented and knowledgeable men in Dallas. Everybody likes you, even if JR is given Ewing a bad name for the moment. There is no reason for this to be a non-functioning company. You're right. I'm serious. You're right. If Daddy were alive today, I'd kick my rear end halfway across the state. Excuse me? Mr. Bobby Ewing? That's right. Uh, would you sign, please? I'll do that. Thank you. <laughs> well, it certainly is pink. Well, maybe I'd better leave. Don't you dare. I may need a witness. <laughs> Phyllis Doe was more than window dressing, and she did more than just file papers, type letters, and make coffee, for she was not only a loyal secretary, she was a loyal friend. The lady who brought Phyllis to life, Deborah Trinelli, is my special guest today, in addition to appearing on Dallas between 1981 and 1991. She is a phenomenal singer and a musical theatrical singer with an outstanding voice. This is made evident in her wonderful CD, A Lot of Living. Let me tell you, it is absolutely fantastic. Well, what was it like to be a part of Dallas for over a decade? Let's find out and so much more. Deborah Trinelli, welcome to Hollywood and Beyond. Thank you, Stephen. I am so glad that we are finally talking and I'm very happy to be with you today. Thank you so much. And that, it's was, a lovely introdu- you and that was a lovely introduction. <laughs> well, I'm glad you liked it. Uh, this is a big honor for me. Well, me as well. You obviously have a great affection and passion 
uh, for Dallas and everyone involved with it, and, and that's uh, very lovely and touching. So, so thank you for, for your, uh, your loyalty. Well, you are most welcome, and I'm so excited to speak with you today. And I have to say it before we kick things off, Deborah, you are one talented lady. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. I do my best. <laughs> and you do that well. <laughs> thank you. Well, before we uh, discuss your artistic journey as an actress and a singer, and of course your your time on Dallas, I thought we would actually start by discussing your just outstanding and phenomenal CD. Um, how did you first come up with the idea for this CD? Was there a moment where you were like, I want to do this. I want to put out a collection of songs and share it with the world. Well, I have been you know, in the recording studio uh, for many, many years on, on different projects, whether it's an original show, <clears throat> excuse me, or someone else's compilation album. And uh, there was a gentleman who uh, was working and creating a lot of and supporting a lot of uh, cabaret artists here in New York and uh, offered me the opportunity to do that. And, um, you know, certainly, uh, and I worked with a wonderful, wonderful producer, Paul Romick, who uh, is a talent in his own right and also married to the very talented Karen Mason, uh, who is a, an incredible uh, artist, vocal artist, cabaret singer and uh, actress. Uh, and uh, I, I certainly, when I had the, the green light to go ahead, uh, there were songs that I that I love, uh, that I wanted to, um, you know, get down in terms of my own arrangements. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I also um, w looked for new artists. Uh, or songs from artists that I had worked with who maybe hadn't had their songs recorded. So there's there are standards maybe with a twist. Uh, there are, uh, uh, you know, uh, original songs. Uh, the great uh, Stephen Schwartz, who is a, a friend, uh, uh, Godspell, Pippin, uh, Wicked, just a few, you know, hit shows on Broadway. Um, he uh, he uh, offered a song for me to record, which made me very happy. Um, I've been... Uh, you know, very fortunate to have put together uh, with uh, four different musical arrangers. So we had very different voice and a very different opportunity. Um, <clears throat> I'm so sorry. I've got a frog that's decided to join us on this interview. Well, no problem um, at all. You sound... <laughs> <laughs> I know. And someone, of course, is trying to call. So I hope that beep isn't coming through. Um, anyway, uh, so, you know, it's just an opportunity for me to... to uh, to share music that I enjoy singing, to find new music, to uh, highlight some writers that I had the uh, had great opportunity to to get to know over the years: John Bacchino, uh, Stephen Lutbeck, uh, Paul Romick himself, and uh, and some standards. And um, it was it was just I was a part of every aspect of creating it, along with uh, the composers and the musical arrangers. And it really was a just a, a labor of love and sheer joy from beginning to end to to create this uh, project. And just, it's it actually, you know, instead of people are saying, you know, is it going to be a specialty album? And I said, it's just going to be songs I love. But as I chose songs, it really became sort of a, a song cycle. And if you really follow the emotional journey along with the songs, it, they really do kind of tell a, a specific story. Um, so I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of it. Uh, there's a... Uh, Bistro Award, which is a cabaret award in the city. I was a recipient of an award for outstanding recording, um, which which 
made me very pleased to be uh, acknowledged in that way. And uh, I've had a lot of, you know, got some wonderful reviews. Uh, it's contemporary, it's jazz, it's standards, it's a little Latin, one little Latin tune for in honor of my dad, um, and a little Carol King, who is one of my heroes. So <laughs> that was a long explanation to tell you oh. how I created the CD. I appreciate you sharing all of that with us. Uh, you were so um, gracious enough to send me a copy in the mail and an, a lovely signed note. Uh, thank you for that. I, I have to say, I find the CD so much fun to listen to, but also emotional. It also kind of just takes my yeah. mind to different my, my mind to different uh, feelings and thoughts, but it's still just a lot of fun too. So I think that's a wonderful combination. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. It was it was definitely something I'm very still very proud of. Uh, I hope it's not my last solo CD, but uh, we'll we'll see. We'll see where the future takes me. I, I continue to sing and make music and find avenues to to perform. So, uh, who knows? Maybe maybe there's an, at least one more in me. Well, I certainly hope so because I would uh, very much be looking forward to that. Uh, is there a, a song or two that stands out on the CD that's one of your favorites, maybe in particular, or that you really, really enjoyed singing? Oh, there's uh, that's that's a tough one. There are there are so many uh, songs. Uh, I mean, every single one of them is 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 special to me. Yes. Um, just because uh, you know they have they have different meaning, maybe from a different time in my life, or um, as I I think I said to you before, I feel that. Um, uh, oh, my dog has decided to become part of the, the interview. <laughs> hey, um, absolutely. I, uh, I, I happen to love, um, uh, you know, I um, like the heavens hold the stars. Uh, mm -hmm. When I recorded that, it made me uh, kind of think about my, my beautiful nieces when they were young and, you know, the special relationship we had and, and just the, you know, the, the future ahead for them. to me because uh, I, I was beginning to work on my CD and, and just kind of choosing material uh, right around the time of 9-11. Uh, and I chose that song um, because there are so many, I wanted a Carole King song on the CD, but I chose that in particular because 
um, after that horrible day when my mother finally got through to me uh, on my phone, um, she said, you know, uh, uh, you know, are you okay? And I said, yes. And she goes, I want you to come home. And so, you know, it's that, that's why I chose that. I get emotional about it because it was, sure. you know, such an emotional day. And yes. um, choosing that song was my kind of um, honor of that, you know, of, of home and the importance of family and home and that human connection that we all need in our lives that gets us through the tough times. Yes. Well said. And the way you look tonight, as I said, uh, I did the Latin twist on it with a wonderful composer uh, who unfortunately uh, um, passed away last year. Our, our musical arranger, uh, Barry Levitt, was a dear friend, and we came up with that Latin arrangement, and my father was a, a lover of, of Latin rhythms, so I, I, that one was for him. So um, I could go on and on, but, uh, but I won't babble anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, your descriptions are, are very uh, enlightening and interesting, and thank you for sharing all that with me and the listeners. If um, folks were interested in, in ordering the CD, let's say they're just now learning about um, the CD or that you even seen, maybe they just weren't aware of it or they just never got around to it. Is there a, a way for them to maybe go online and order the CD? Well, there you're going to put me in a sticky spot because um, I am now the sole owner of, of what few CDs remain. I see. Uh, from the catalog of my producers. So unfortunately, they'd have to contact me directly. Um, okay. I'm, I'm making plans to get it. I'm making plans to uh, get it on iTunes. So gotcha. uh, that will that will happen. So once it's on exciting. iTunes, then people can purchase it themselves. So that sounds um, wonderful. <laughs> right. <laughs> a lot of living. And I'll tell you, ladies and gentlemen, it is an outstanding CD. I, I strongly personally recommend it to all of you Dallas fans out there. Uh, you will be very um, uh, glad that you gave it a listen. Uh, wonderful Thank CD. You. Well, let's uh, go back a ways. Uh, uh, Deborah. we, we kind of started off with your uh, CD, but how about we go back to the beginning and let folks know uh, maybe uh, who aren't aware where you are from. I was born in Corning, New York, and I was raised in Schenectady, New York. So I'm an upstate New York girl. Um, I was three months old when, when my father was transferred and we moved there. So Schenectady, New York is my home. Um, and that's where my singing began, my theater began, my dance began, uh, just through, uh, really through public school education. I had amazing uh, music um, teachers. Uh, I took ballet. And then when I was and there was always music in my house. My parents both played musical instruments, uh, not not um, you know actively when I was a child, but they both had uh, you know uh, were accomplished musicians. And there was always music in our home and appreciation for it. Um, and then my local light opera company uh, did a production of Sound of Music, and I um, begged and cajoled and convinced my parents that I would keep my grades up if they would let me audition for the show. And <laughs> I got it, and I did. And I was like Louisa, <laughs> and so it was. It was I, once I was bitten by that bug, uh, it never let go. And uh, sure. it was a combination of, of singing, which I was doing, and uh, and the, and dance, and kind of fell in love with that acting thing too. And I've never never looked back. And then uh, continued to um, do a lot of solo work and choral work all the way through high school, 
And uh, also there was an um, amazing woman named Pat Klein, who, believe it or not, was a gym teacher, but also directed the, the musicals. Oh, wow. And they were, they were <laughs> of incredible quality. Nice. And, uh, uh, my, two, my two large roles, I did uh, Louise and Gypsy, and then I was Fanny Bryce and Funny Girl. And uh, during that time, um, another teacher in the area, um, through through this through Miss Klein, um, who had attended Northwestern, uh, told me about Northwestern as I was applying for colleges, and uh, I got accepted there on early acceptance, and uh, had an amazing four years at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, as a theater major, and speech and the School of Speech, now called the School of Communication. And began my career in Chicago. So I was doing, uh, I was singing, uh, I was doing uh, theater, I was doing what they used to call industrial shows, which are like business theater, big, big splashy productions for corporations, a lot of jingle singing, uh, commercial singing, a lot of voiceover work, which I still continue to do, and uh, was working there for three years with an, an original. Uh, cast production of a show called Do Black Patent Leather Shoes Really Reflect Up? Some of some listeners might remember oh. that show in Chicago, Detroit, <laughs> and Philly, but it, they yes. had a very short run in New York. It did oh, not do well in New York, but by then I was in California. Um, I was planning to go to New York. Uh, I had every plan to as a theater person, you know, music and musical sure. and dramatic. And uh, I had friends who had been uh, upperclassmen to me at Northwestern who were now working in television on the West Coast, uh, either either junior agents or working with casting or writers who were encouraging me to come to L.A., which is not even something I'd thought about. So um, I thought, well, I was I was a young woman. I was like, you know, no fear if it if it works out great. If it doesn't, I'll just come back and go to New York. So uh, I bought a car and drove by myself. This is pre-cell phone days, folks, uh, yes. <laughs> from Chicago to Los Angeles. A different time. And, uh, yeah, very different time. And uh, arrived uh, to stay with a dear friend of mine, uh, Kathleen Connor, who was working for a casting agency. Um, and she uh, she kindly offered me a, a bed <laughs> uh, <laughs> and... Uh, and in her in her apartment, which was kind of her, I believe it. Actually, I should say the couch, which was good. Um, that'll work. And uh, <laughs> that was fantastic. And uh, a place to stay in Venice, California. And uh, two days, I write, I think about two days before Thanksgiving in that general uh, time zone or time. And uh, had an, uh, you know, an interview. Um, she had an agent that she thought, might be interested in me. So I met with the agent and the role had opened up uh, for Bobby's secretary on Dallas. And I had an interview with the agent. He said, this role has opened up. I think you might be right for it. Let's see how it goes. Just to, just to do a test. I met with uh, Leonard Katzman, Irene Mariano. I don't remember everybody in the room. This is a long time ago. And I was kind of like overwhelmed by all of it. I do sure. remember walking onto the MGM lot, and as a musical person, it was just, I'm on the MGM lot, you know, <laughs> the yes. home of the, music, yes. the musical movie, uh, oh, and, yes. and just walking through the gates was enough, Was and they said, oh, you're going to go to the Gable building, so you're going to make a right on Garland Street, and I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh, overwhelming. And well, Deborah, you might have wanted to start singing and break out in song. 
I, I almost <laughs> did, but I controlled myself. <laughs> okay. I might have pinched myself. I'm not sure. Uh, what I do remember is as I made the turn to go to the building, Syl- Sylvester Stallone walked by. That's what I remember, believe it or not. Um, those were wow. early Rocky days. Yes. Um, so uh, so went for the interview. Went well, I mean, I read just a couple of lines. It was more, I think, just to see me and get a feel for that. And uh, I went home and got a phone call. I don't know if it was that day or maybe a couple of days, you know, afterwards. And uh, that I'd gotten the part. And I filmed my first episode two days before Christmas, 1980. So about, I was literally there a month. That is something else. I mean, wow. Talk about arriving to Los Angeles and getting things <laughs> going quickly. You didn't waste any time. Well, well, and I, and of course, all I was thinking was, oh, they're going to realize, you know, I, I didn't have a huge television background. You know, I'd done some commercial work and things, but I wasn't, you know, I wasn't at home in front of the, uh, in front of the television camera. And I said, oh, they're going to realize they made a mistake. They're going to use me once, and then they're going to go, oh, sorry, we've changed our mind. Well, I guess I was wrong about that because over yes. 10 years later, I was, you know, still there. So They made the right um, choice, no doubt about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you have to understand that, you know, I was auditioning for a show that I had hardly seen because I was a yes. theater person. I was doing a show on Friday nights. So as you well know, we w- there was no recording device to be able to see an episode. If you missed right. an episode, you missed an episode. You were out of um, Exactly. So I, I did a little cram course because <laughs> my, <'cause> my <laughs> mom and dad did watch Dallas. Um, but uh, uh, it was it was quite a quite an experience. I, I was I was a little, you know, I, I pinched myself, but I also had that in the back of my mind, how long is this going to last? So who knew that it would be all those amazing years? Yes, and so you would remain kind of with the, the show for the rest of the decade and into the 90s. Correct. Yeah, till, till the next, I think next to last episode was our last episode, yeah. Yes. Well, and you worked with um, uh, some uh, other uh, very talented ladies uh, who also portrayed secretaries. The wonderful thing about Dallas right. was its atmosphere, and that included, um, you know, it was it was so uh, wise with how it incorporated supporting characters and guest stars, and yes, and, and yes, I, you know, you really can't underestimate the uh, impact that can have. So you had you mm-hmm. as Bobby Ewing's secretary, and we had Sly as J.R. Ewing's, and and Cliff had Jackie. So it just all worked really well, didn't it? The way they had it set. Yeah, and we were very. We were very much a part of that, you know, the, the structure and the personality of, of, of the show. Absolutely. And each of us had very, you know, sort of specific relationships, kind of based on I, almost the, the nature of the character we were working for. Do you know what I mean? Um, yes. uh, you know, certainly, uh, you know, people always would say to me, you know, well, you know, is anything going to happen between the two of you? And, you know, you went out in that episode and you had a drink together and you, you kind of opened up. And I said, no, the whole point is that I, we, he was the good guy. You know, he had his, he had his faults just like anybody does, but he was the good guy. And I was, I always used to, I actually used to describe myself, this would go way back in television. I used to describe myself sort of as the Della Street you know, Perry Mason's Della Street. You remember yes, she was loyal yes. and she always kind of called him, you know, when she thought he needed, you know, a boost in morale or, or whatever. But, and that was kind of my relationship with, with Patrick. And, and the yes. fear was they didn't want it to become anything more. You know, they wanted to keep that as that kind of relationship, as that supportive friendship. Um, 
And so maybe our storylines weren't always as, uh, you know, as exciting or exotic as, as certainly some of them became with, uh, you know, between Sly and Jr. you know, um, or, or with, you know, Jackie and, and Cliff and him. I mean, I, I, I think about her always rolling her eyes at, you know, at him. <laughs> when he yes. would start to go off, you know, and she'd be like, Cliff. <laughs> you know, how many times and, did he leave uh, and, the office? Uh, huffing and puffing or, or you know, exactly. and, and you're right. She had the or ready eyes to blow a back. gasket. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of course, and then, of course, we had our wonderful Denon Simpson, uh, we had Deb Bernard, uh, who, yes. you know, was, was played Sly, and Danon Simpson, who was Kendall, the receptionist. So yes. it was very it was very funny. This is something some people know and some don't. It's like when we first came on, she, there was a Deborah, and then there was another Deborah, and then there was a Danon. So we became the three Ds. I was D1. Leonard Katzman coined this. The dear Leonard Katzman. I was D1, Deb Bernard was D2, and Danan was D3. <laughs> I see. <laughs> so we still sometimes write to each other as D1 or D2 because oh, that's, that's just, nice. you know, that was kind of an affectionate way to keep track. And we really did go out to lunch together. That is like, wonderful. You know, uh, like, like executive assistants. If we were all filming on the same day, you know, and they're together, we would grab lunch together. So we, we did kind of hang out. So. Well, that's wonderful. And, and I will... You worked uh, so closely with uh, the ladies. Uh, often you guys were in the mm -hmm. same scene so much. Absolutely. Well, especially Deb and I were, you know, because yes. our offices, our desks were, for the most part, are, were near each other. You know, we worked yes. in the same sort of entryway space, although the various configurations of the office, we might not be right next to each other. But she and I always joke, it's, it's kind of a visual, but we had this look that we would give each other when somebody would walk in or we knew there was trouble looming or somebody came in upset, you know, one of the brothers with the other one or looking for, you know, someone looking for them. And we would give each other one of those, one of those, here we go looks <laughs> yes, <laughs> that we sort I of remember. coined. Nick. <laughs> so, uh, it was um, a lot of yeah, fun. And, and, and of course we didn't really work with Cheryl, but sometimes she was filming on the same day. So we would hang out together. She, she was such a dear, um, and uh, very sad to lose her so young. But uh, Cheryl yes. was also wonderful. And on a personal note, she was a huge fan of my singing and my music. And I did a lot of cabaret performing. And she organized on more than one occasion a group of people to come and see me perform. Uh, was always fantastic. Uh, a, a great uh, supporter and of everyone, you know, and their work. She really did care about all of us, not just on the set. Um, so that, that's I, wonderful I, I hold to her very dearly in my heart. Mm -hmm. Yes. When I, when I see clips mm -hmm. of her or if I'm watching an old episode or if I just see a picture or think of her, you know, it is, it's very sad to think that she passed away at such a young age, but um, yeah. she certainly did uh, do a wonderful job on the show. And um, I always think of her very fondly. So thank you for sharing yeah. that. And well, um, she was I a reflection of her, her great dad too. So, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's very nice to hear. And you worked, uh, obviously, like you mentioned earlier, so much with, um, um, uh, you know, uh, Deborah Bernard and portraying Sly. And, um, I'll tell you what, um, when you work with someone, you know, that long for so many years, uh, you probably develop a good friendship, I would imagine, or you, you really get well with how you go about doing scenes. You kind of know each other really well. Um, Absolutely. When you think back to working with her, just uh, in general, what was the overall experience like for you? 
Oh, Deb and I were, you know, we always had a wonderful time. It was, it was a great set to work on. And, uh, obviously there were times when our, when our, if our bosses were not getting along, we would have to act like we weren't getting along, you know? Yes. <laughs> um, but, but Deb and I have, have remained friends all these years. Uh, yes. uh, you know, she has moved to the East Coast several, several years ago and we reconnected, uh, and, and are as, as close as ever. And, um, that's we get wonderful. together quite often and have a great and and have a great friendship. Uh, I reconnected with Danan when I was on the West Coast a couple of years ago, and we got together. So um, no, those are those are valuable friendships, and and Deb and I really have been fans of each other with all of our other our work, and and remain connected through you know and uh, just with with family and everything else. Um, so so she is. She has, she is a great friend. I think that's um, one of the episodes that people always bring up and I'm don't, I'm not trying to do a segue on you. I'm just, uh, it's something <laughs> that I think feeds into what you just said uh-huh. when, when there is the episode where Bobby has been killed or yes. Bobby has died and yes. the scene where she's comforting me. That's like a genuine, you know, you can't fake that. That's a genuine connection of us, you know, supporting each other. And and I I, li- I always like that moment, even though I'm not saying a word, just the way she is handling it and has her hands, you know, on my shoulders and and is is you know coping with the situation. <laughs> Hello. Say, what's the matter? What's going on there? Oh, my God. What is it? What's wrong? Stop me. Those are the kind of moments where... um, that really comes through. And even in our last episode where I'm urging her to, you know, to go and, and tell JR what's going on and I'm kind of teasing her and all that, that's, that's, that's a genuine relationship that comes through. And I think that's true of all the characters, you know, with Patrick and, and Larry. I mean, they had a genuine, strong, you know, friendship and relationship. And I think even when they were adversaries, that still comes through that they yes. ultimately really cared about each other. I completely agree. Well said. Um, despite everything, they, they still loved each other, even during mm-hmm. those uh, intense uh, disagreements. And, but you, you, you could tell that deep down they, they most definitely cared for each other. And that really mm-hmm. added to the brother relationship. In many ways, right. I find their relationships of characters one of the more fascinating brother relationship that television has has offered. There's, there's so many ups and downs and complexities, and um, they, it was just um, it was it was just a joy and so much fun to go along with their adventures. And, uh, well, as many I, people, if you remember from the early from the early day, they really were described. I, I don't know where it's actually written, but it was it was Cain and Abel. I mean, yes, that was kind yes. of there. There's even you know the Mark of Cain is one of the episodes. I, obviously, Cain and Abel without the murder, but um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but but that was business. That that was the business aspect of it. Um, you know, they lived they lived in the same house together. You know, I mean, yes, these people that's were right. close. 
<laughs> they, they, they were very close. Breakfast, right. lunch, dinner, drinks, you yeah. got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have a well, bourbon and branch at, at the oh. oil, at the <laughs> Barons. Boy, exactly, I'll tell the you. Cattleman's Club, yep. <laughs> That's his, that, that was JR's drink. You, 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 you nailed it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so much fun. So many great restaurants. You just brought up uh, one and uh, just, just Dallas, just wonderful, wonderful atmosphere and uh, no doubt a big part of its success and appeal. Uh, I, I, I wanted to go back to that moment, though, where you described about uh, Bobby dying and uh, mm-hmm. on the episode Swan Song. Well, I have mm-hmm. to tell you, when I first watched that, I was actually watching that, Deborah, when it aired. Your uh, reaction to the uh, the news of what was happening, and you described it so well, it really just reached out and grabbed me. I just could, it was just such a overwhelming uh, feeling of despair. And that that's definitely a scene that, um, you know, stays in the memory. Definitely one that I won't forget. Uh, just a very emotional moment. Well, it, it's it's genuine emotion. I mean, I, I remember <clears throat> being interviewed not long after that, and someone said, "What were you thinking?" And of course, just to to make light of it, because it was a very emotional scene. I said, "Well, um, I thought, oh my gosh, I'm out of a job." <laughs> and oh, no. someone said, "I said, but not really." I said, "No." I said, "I yes. had great and continue to have great affection for Patrick uh, and the friendship that we forged, uh, you know, on the show." Um, and it was a genuine sense of loss. You know, I was yes. very, very sad that, you know, he would no longer be with us. Um, and certainly as an actor, you always bring in your own sense of loss uh, that you've had in your life. Um, and so, you know, that was that was something that that for me was was very was very personal. And it really did cut deep. Um, I truly thought I'm 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 going to lose a friend, um, you know. And yes. uh, and someone who's very dear. I mean, we we had a we really did have a um, uh, you know a, an, an affection for each one another as actors and uh, as people. And so was, that was a tough one. It sure was very emotional, mm-hmm. uh, heartbreaking, all of those things. And but guess what, Deborah? Patrick returns after the following season. And I have yes. to tell you this, as a as a young guy growing up in the 80s, as, mm-hmm. as broad as I was with Patrick leaving and one of my favorite characters, Bobby Ewing, uh, apparently gone for good, to actually know that he was coming back was so exciting for me. And I'll share mm-hmm. this with you, Deborah. I consider it one of the more unique returns that television has ever experienced because sure, lots of shows have had people where you thought they were dead and they came back, but this was different. It was just such an emphasis that he was leaving and he wasn't going to be back and they made sure that it appeared that way. Well, when he came back and it was like picking up right where you left off, it was almost like that feeling if someone that we knew was gone from our life suddenly came back. Mm -hmm. It was like this mm-hmm. really surreal, joyful uh, viewing experience for me, and I'm sure for millions of Dallas fans. It, you know, I, I know that people were happy, and I know especially, you know, Larry was happy to have to have Patrick back. Um, but but I, I have to be honest with you that we all, none of us knew. We, none of us were privy to, you know, except those who were specifically involved with that scene, and they would get those pages. You know, with a cliffhanger or the first 
episode of the next season after the cliffhanger. You only received, it was a need-to-know basis. It was like government secrets. So we yes. didn't know how, what, how they were going to do it. We really didn't yes. know. We knew they, I guess they had filmed alternate versions of it. But we were, when, when, it, when, we, when we finally knew what it was, we're like, are people really going to buy that? I mean, they, a sh- it's a dream. He's in the shower. It was like, what? We all were just like floored at that. But we knew people, you know, those who wanted to see him back were just so happy. It was like, how, how are you going to bring someone back? You know, it's not daytime soap operas. People come and go all the time. Or their, or their twin comes, you know. They come back right. as their twin or whatever it is. So, yes, elated to have Patrick back, but it, it truly was a, a, a surprise that that, yes. that that was how they, you know, there, there came back. There was some media it. criticism, I'm sure you remember. Um, oh, some media yes, outlets were not so kind. <laughs> <laughs> that is but, correct. Um, that is correct. I, for um, one, and I know many carefully. others. <laughs> that, that's right. I mean, I mean, there was all kinds of, um, you know, like a whole season. I mean, how can they do that to the viewers? But you know what, uh, Deborah? For me, I was just so happy to have Bobby Ewing back. Mm-hmm. Um, that was what I focused on, and um, I was just so excited right. to have the character back. Well, I I will share one thing with you, which I you know sure. don't get to talk about very often, and and it's interesting because you asked, you know, we had talked about, you know, not letting the relationship go beyond a business relationship between um, Bobby and Phyllis. Um, but what happened? But so, so in some ways, as as much as I understood that reason, it limited character development for me, and you know what, how how involved, um, you know, I would be in the storylines. What happened for me in that season was that Victoria Principal, as Pam, came into the office, and we had, um, you know, we built a relationship. You know, she kept me on. There was a there's a wonderful scene where she asks if I she understands if I wouldn't want to stay on and work with her. We have this wonderful scene, and I had some of some of the nicest scenes that season working for Pam as Phyllis because you didn't have yes. that opportunity for a, for some kind of you know for lack of a better term, some kind of sexual tension or any possibility that, you know, there would be anything else. So for me as an actor, it was a wonderful opportunity to get to do some really nice scene work. And and Victoria and I developed a very nice friendship, and she was very helpful to me in some charitable events that I created down the road. So that was a mixed bag for me. I mean, I could not have been happier to have Patrick back, but in a way having an entire season sort of not exist I mean, any of it was was yes. kind of odd. Yeah, that was kind of odd. So it was, like I said, it was a, it was a, a mixed sort of. There was joy, but there was also sorrow that we lost certain storylines, which had been kind of fun for us to do. Also for Steve and for um, for Susan Howard, you know, Steve Canale and Susan Howard, their characters. There was lots going on with them oh, in that sure season wasn't. as well. So, yes, they had a very uh, nice storyline, very emotional storyline during the dream season. Huh? Mm-hmm. And then that was gone. I mean, like you're saying, it, it was gone. Um, and you know what, Deborah? When I uh, see episodes from that season today, okay, so all these years later, it really mm-hmm. does feel like a dream. It has a very surreal element because you know as mm-hmm. a viewer now that Patrick will be back. So when you watch it and you realize none of this is happening, it, it does feel like a dream. Right. So it has a different, and you're saying it has obviously has a different impact on you now 
knowing yes. because you could now look back with, with the knowledge that he did come back. That's right. And you can, and you, that, and that colors all of your viewing of that season. So mm-hmm. I Absolutely. can understand that. Well, I really appreciate you sharing all of that. Uh, I would love to ask you this question. So uh, obviously in scenes where, let's say, um, uh, the other characters are talking to each other and they're out in the lobby where you and uh, the character of Sly would be. So you have to mm-hmm. keep yourself looking busy. You have to uh, you know, be moving papers around or answering the phone. <laughs> How much does a director give you this you know, uh, instruction or does he kind of just leave it up to you ladies to uh, get that all sorted out on your own? We kind of, I mean, my memory is that we sort of just, it was, you know, keep busy, busy work. We had Texas Instrument computers, which, of course, were not plugged in. <laughs> Those big yeah, old we, computers on our desks. Yes, um, yes. Uh, you know, we might be in the middle of a phone call. It was more choreography in terms of if you're on the phone, they come in, then you're, you yes. know, it was it had to do more with the choreography of, um, you know, entrances and exits. Or let's say you started out and you were at the file cabinet. They wanted you at the file cabinet so you could do a crossover and meet them as they come in. I mean, those kind of things had to be set, obviously, for camera. Sure. We were one camera film, so remember, everything had to be shot one way, and then we had to wait and flip everything around and shoot it another way. So wow. it was a much more time-consuming, uh, uh, you know, filming uh, schedule than it was usually probably six, six and a half days per episode. So it was a long, and those seasons where we had, you know, close to what, 30 episodes, I think, did we have like 30 or 31, maybe even one year? Yes, I believe so. The long long shooting schedule. So, um, yeah, but, but I mean, you know, we might talk about something with each other, like, well, I'll do this and you do this, but it was much more about just the movement of the scene more than anything else. And then it was just busy work shuffling papers around or being on the phone or hanging the phone up or being on the computer, you know, just it, it wasn't that specific when we were at the desk. Gotcha. Well, you guys always uh, just appeared so natural in all your scenes. And uh, I was always impressed with that. Uh, well, let me ask you. Um, well, attention you, you know, to detail is important. Attention is. to detail is important. Yeah. It is very important. And, um, you know, an actor really has to be prepared, you know, to to, to really uh, give that all they have. Uh, can't just go through the motions or it's going to show, isn't it, on screen? Like, hmm, that person doesn't mm-hmm. look like they're really a, a secretary after all. And you guys, you ladies always, uh, you know, came across as full professional secretaries. So you got the job done. Um, I did want to ask uh, the offices of, mm-hmm. of you and oil. It changed over the years as the show uh, progressed and they got bigger and bigger. Did you have a favorite set in particular? There was, you know, I, I certainly couldn't quote it by season or, <laughs> or year uh, at this right. point. There was a, there was definitely one where it was a, a, a beautiful elevator entrance. And then uh, Kendall, the, the non's character would be sitting out in the sort of, you know, um, foyer, you know, the entry. And then you would walk through the main doors and I was kind of where my desk was right at where the main doors were. And then Slice was, I believe, off to my left. She had her own kind of area. I liked that because it was spacious, but we had a sense that we had our own office space, you know, as opposed to like being literally side by side like we were for, for several seasons. I mean, our desks were literally like right, you know, across from each other. Um, it was kind of nice. It gave it, it kind of opened up the space into the offices, and and I, I, I liked I liked that. And we never knew, you know, what set we were going to walk into every year. So, <laughs> yeah, they kept changing, and uh, boy, I'll tell you, all those restaurants and everything. Dallas just had the best sets, and of course, South Fork Ranch. I mean, 
mm-hmm. in many ways, the heart of the show as far as the set goes. Um, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, on different sound stages, they literally recreated, um, you, you may already know this, but uh, I mean, they recreated like the, the you know, the back um, sort of exit patio uh, area and the pool. I mean, there was a swimming pool. It was on a sound stage. Yes. And I remember the first time I went to South Fork and I said, oh, my gosh, they have absolutely recreated South Fork, the, you know, the, that part of the um, sort of doors that led out to the patio. Um, quite a bit of it was the set was very specific to South Fork so that they could do, you know, easy editing and cuts when they would, you know, from what they cut, from what they filmed down in Dallas, um, you know, and when they were doing cuts on the set once we were back in, in uh in Culver City. So uh, I was always very impressed by that. I, they really did a fantastic job. I mean, the ranch is very, you know, it's, it isn't a lot, it's not like, it's not a tree lined. It's very open, very expansive. And, and we, of course, were always there when we, the few times we did go, um, it was always very, it's very hot because we were there in the summertime. Yes. And it was, you know, like, and and I didn't go down that often, you know, mostly if there was like a wedding or some kind of party or something special that we would, the few times that I actually went to, to Dallas. Um, so uh, I was always very, you know, Im- impressed by, um, I have to say that the extras and or atmosphere as we say now, um, were always impeccably dressed, beautifully dressed. <laughs> yes, like, they were. I like her dress better. Not that nothing against our customers. I go, she looks really great. How, how come I'm wearing <laughs> this? I want to be in that. <laughs> I mean, even the, the, you know, secretaries and personal assistants and, you know, walking around the offices when we would do exterior shots near, a, uh, you know, an office building or whatever. I mean, they, they are dressed. They, they were beautifully, beautifully dressed. And I always felt badly because we would get to go in the house and they would often be outside trying to find whatever shade they could in the hot sun. I always felt very badly about that. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah, and uh, the, the, the fashion on Dallas was, was impeccable. And I always thought a lot of the uh, male characters uh, just had the most, I thought they had the most coolest suits. Um, and they did have great very suits. We had shoulder pads. Yes. We had big <laughs> hair and shoulder pads for a long time. Yes. And, uh, you know, Dallas, it's interesting because the earlier years, our clothes were, I mean, granted, we were, we were certainly not, you know, we were working in an office. We were going to be dressed very differently than Miss Ellie or Sue Ellen or, or Pam, you know, uh, or right. some of the other characters. But, um, you know, I, I always felt like it was a much, it was sort of realistic uh, kind of dress. And then we got into, I always felt like once Dynasty came on, there was the sense that we sort of had to compete with the fashion of, 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 of that series yes. and that the, the costuming became a little more, you know, elaborate and that's when the shoulder pads were in and, you know, the bigger hair and everything. Um, and then we kind of worked our way back from that uh, to very, you know, nicely elegant but not extreme. Um, so, you know, fashion, as fashion changes, our fashion changed. That's, that's what happens, so. And, uh, you know, we all these years later, Deborah, the show holds up so well. I mean, sure, devices are are out of date. And like you said, some of the fashion is. But overall, the show holds up so well uh, because I think it is due to classic storytelling. And, and the family relationship. It really is 
with all of the with you know all of the machinations of the oil industry and all the international intrigue and everything else going on and the struggles business wise which are important to the series obviously and 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 made it distinctive it really was about the family as as was not slanting the spin-off it really was about the family relationships and yes. the relationship between these people and the events as they affected the family and that and then ultimately that's what Miss Ellie was trying to do was, you know, keep peace between her sons because the most important thing was to be united as a family. And um, I always, uh, you know, appreciated that, that it came back to that um, and how those other aspects of the business affected the family relationships. So I, I sadly never got to really know Jim Davis because he was very ill by the time I came onto the show. Um I didn't, as I said, I didn't film until December of 1980. Um, so I never, I did meet him one time um, very early uh, in 81, but I did not have the pleasure of, of working with him uh, directly. And then, of course, uh, after his passing, we had the wonderful Howard Keel enter into the picture, and that was sheer delight and pleasure for me. Once again, MGM musical star, uh, and he became just a, he also, and his wife, Judy, became very dear friends and um, always loved when I was working on the same day that he was. And of course, we were both golfers, so we shared that love and uh, <laughs> we were at various charity events together and over the nice. years. So, um, Such an amazing yeah, voice, his singing Oh, voice. my goodness. He and would come in, well, because he Well, because he knew that I appreciated his career before you know this is like a resurgence for him it's such a wonderful gift this role for howard because then he started performing again and he really you know got um, you know concert uh, engagements uh he would come in and i would just say oh howard please sing to me and he would lean into my ear and say good morning deborah and that voice of his and <laughs> sing a little something to me you know and oh, oh i was that was that was those are those are the things that that you look forward to you know once you're on the set it's it's your job and it's your work and you love it as an artist but when you can bring those relationships and you look forward to being with people and it's not just showing up and getting through the, the day, when you really care about the people that you work with and, and you delight in their company, as I did with, with certainly with Patrick and Larry and, and Deb and Danan and Cheryl and all of the people that I got to work with and the amazing guest stars and all of the other recurring characters, you know, there's a lot of time when you're not in front of that camera. So it's always great when you feel that if you have to hang out for a lot of hours, which you do, <laughs> um, that you enjoy the company of the people you're hanging out with. Yes. And uh, Patrick and Larry were known for um, having an extra good time with some practical jokes. And <laughs> uh, I've heard so many stories and it just makes me chuckle every time. Must have been something well, else. <clears throat> Well, they, they truly were like, you know, Peck's bad boys. I mean, making faces and being silly and, and cutting <laughs> up. And I, I always found it ironic. One of the things that I was speaking of that set where I would, was sitting facing basically the elevator um, in, in the entryway there. And my, one of my favorite things they used to do was, of course, they would be on the elevator, you know, coming into the office. So the elevator door would close. And it was usually during rehearsal. I, I don't I don't remember that it ever happened during a take, but it, it might have because depending on how silly they were that day, the doors would open and they would be on their knees 
as if the elevator had not come all the way up. Does that make sense? In other words, yes, the elevator doors would open and you'd see half their bodies. <laughs> and they, they did that. I cannot tell you how many times they did that. And so that's what cracks me up about that oh, episode. I think it was called 300. <laughs> the episode where they're on the elevator and they're stuck on the elevator. Yes, and that's all a wonderful episode. Wine. So I, that always cracks me up because I think about them and the elevator and, and them doing that. And then they would make this silly sort of rat face thing to each other. And oh, I mean, they just the outtake reels were, you know, hysterical. Um, but that's one of the things that, that used to crack me up. And every time they do it, you they, you go, oh, like when someone tells that same silly joke over and over again, you go, really? <laughs> 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 and I would warn people if they were going to be in a scene with them that they might, they might, they might do things, you know, like, especially if it's someone who's just coming in for one episode, because it could be very intimidating walking onto a set that's so established, you know? Yes, absolutely. And you know what, uh, Deborah? Do you remember back in the 80s, we didn't have uh, Netflix, obviously, or Amazon Prime. We didn't have on-demand options and Wi-Fi. So if you missed an episode of Dallas, you really Mm -hmm. felt like you missed something important. Because now, sure, you could catch up next week, but you, man, you missed out something in between. And you never wanted to miss an episode. And I remember being a uh, basically a, a young boy and teenager. Growing up in the 80s, you know, I used to tell my friends that I would not be available on Friday nights between 845 <laughs> and 10. And and at first they were like, well, why? I said, because Dallas is on, but I'll be happy to play with you afterwards. So every Friday that was the <laughs> when the season was on. That's how I handled my friends. And uh, they thought that was something else. My mom would not answer the phone. And if the phone kept ringing, she would actually just take it off the hook. So oh, we had our terrible. ways of making sure we weren't disturbed when Dallas was on. And and, and that wasn't oh. just us, Deborah. That was that's how the whole country was. Oh yeah. It was definitely a Friday night date for a lot of people. You didn't do anything else if Dallas was on. Um and I always found that fascinating because you know, when you're doing the show, it's like you're doing the show, you know, and it's if there's an episode that you're on that you're interested in or whether you're on it or not, you wanted to see how the storyline comes through, they'd always do that little recap. Right at the beginning on, yes. on last week's episode, right? They always do that on last on, on Dallas. Right, exactly. Last on Dallas. So <laughs> I always, I always, that was like your little recap. But I'm sure that if you missed one, you had to ask people who saw it what happened, yes, or you'd exactly. have to wait until because you wouldn't want to have to wait until the reruns. But they used to rerun an entire season or pretty close to an entire season all summer back then too, didn't they? I believe. I believe so. Yes, right, right I'm over. I'm getting the old, and my memory is. <laughs> no, you are correct because if I did happen to miss one before VCRs arrived, thankfully, I had to wait till the mm-hmm. summer, and I did look for it. If I missed an episode, I'm like, aha, this is the night I need to watch to catch up. Yeah. And you would never want to miss a cliffhanger because that's the big time event. Um, oh, absolutely! That was immediate. That was truly a media, almost an international media event because. You know, we were in so many, uh, when they started syndication, I mean, not even just syndication, they were literally translated into so many different languages. It wasn't just an American phenomenon after a while. It was actually, he was so popular, especially in in France and the UK and, um, you know, uh, Germany. Uh, There were so many other countries that were so into, you know, everybody knew if you walked around, knew who J.R. Ewing was. I mean, it's, I, I went to, 
uh, I'll tell you just a couple of interesting stories on that. On that sort of note, is I was traveling in uh, Europe in late. I'm going to say 84. I think 85. Yeah, uh, just briefly, and I was traveling from uh, Rome to Paris on a train, overnight train, with my my girlfriend who I was traveling with, and we were bunking with a couple of nuns, which is a joke unto itself. <laughs> yes, I but bet. they asked us what we did, where we were from, what we did, and 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 of course they only spoke French. Uh, and these were missionary nuns who were returning from Africa. So um, we, we told them what we did, and they, I, I won't go into the the the, the French, although I, I could. But I basically <laughs> told her that I, I my, well, that I was an actress, and my friend and my friend is going, well, tell her tell her what you're on. I said, no, I'm not going to tell her what I'm on. So of course she pushed it and pushed it, and I told her, you know, je suis Phyllis, the secretaire de Bob Ewing au Dallas. She went oh, Dallas. Her eyes lit up. They started madly chattering, uh, madly chattering back and forth ran out of the car, told us to wait, and, and all of a sudden, like, five or six other nuns are at the cabin staring <laughs> at me. <laughs> and oh, my goodness. rapid-fire French. They knew. They knew. They all came they in. Dallas. I was in the jungles of, of Malaysia, where the longhouses are, you know, in, uh, on a charity tour junket uh, in 1988. In the middle of the jungle, this, we're getting off the bus to go to the longhouses and take a tour, and uh, this gentleman calls out, out of like all of a sudden I hear, Felice, Felice. And this elderly, very elderly gentleman is waving at me. And, and they had t- tiny televisions in a lot of their longhouses. He goes, how is Bobby Ewing? How is Bobby Ewing? Felice is calling to me <laughs> in the middle of the jungle. So that's the thing that's mind boggling to me. The wow. That's to which it, yeah, to which the series you know, went beyond just an American phenomenon. Well, it was a special time. And, um, you know, I enjoy On Demand. I mean, it's it's great to have all these episodes at one time, but there was a lot of fun when I look back, uh, you know, kind of going through a whole season week to week. Mm-hmm. And I used to always get so excited, Deborah, when I would see Next on Dallas and something big would happen and I would be like, oh, my goodness, I just can't wait till next Friday. Right. Well, so, and I, an iconic theme song, certainly. You oh, know. yes. Uh, yes. Very you know, energetic. <laughs> yes. And of course, I wouldn't always be able to tell, I wouldn't always report to my mom and dad who watched religiously once I was on, or religious watchers as well. I, I, uh, my mom would always say, oh, I would wait because I would know that if they shot up the, the side of the office building, you know, up to the offices, and I knew it was the Ewing Oil offices, that you might be on that episode. Because <laughs> I wouldn't report <laughs> yes. every single, after a while, you know, that many episodes, I wouldn't report every week that I was on. And I just thought that was so cute. So, you know, um, it, it, it really was a, 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 an amazing introduction to, you know, uh, uh, who, who knew that it was going to I mean, I certainly didn't know that my time on the series would be as long as it was, but uh, and it certainly opened up other doors for me. And uh, I guest starred on other television series and did film work, just as many of us did. And I was doing my theater and my music, so you know, it was a, a wonderful home to go to for for a long time. It sure was a wonderful uh, a place to be. And you encountered so many amazing guest stars and. In recurring characters as well on Dallas. Mm-hmm. One I would like to ask you about. 
Boy, there were so many, sure. but one I definitely would like to ask about is is Don Starr, who portrayed uh, Leland, and um, or excuse me, uh, Jordan Lee. Jordan and, Lee. Uh, mm -hmm. He was just uh, uh, always fun to have that character on because if he was pleased with you, he was your best friend and 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 having drinks. And if he was upset with you, he was scowling and very unpleased. But what was it? I like the like word working. <laughs> He played, I like his character was irascible. That's one of my favorite yes, <laughs> words. Yes, he, he could. Yes, he could. He could be having fun if you were telling him exactly what he wanted to hear. But the minute, you know, he felt like Jr. was doing something, he'd come in and complain to Bobby about what Jr. was up to. Don was a dear, dear man. Um, I, I, you know, basically when I would see him was when he would come into our offices. But Don was very involved with a lot of charity work, and we we went to many events together. And I also got to know his, his wife, uh, Beverly, as well. Um, and they're just lovely, lovely people. I mean, he, he was so not Jordan Lee. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he was kind and charitable and funny and a very, very bright man. And, and uh, uh, I always enjoyed when he was going to be around because we, we had a lot of fun together. Well, you uh, obviously have spoken a lot about Patrick and, and his character, Bobby Ewing. I would just like to get your impressions on the character of J.R. Ewing, just the character. You know, of course, he's he did horrendous things at times, especially early on in particular. But as the series went along, the thing that attracted me to the character is that I always mm -hmm. felt that J.R. Ewing was multidimensional. And what I mean Absolutely. by that is he was actually a deep feeling man. Even though, mm -hmm. you know, on the surface, he may not always try to express that openly. If you look into his eyes, especially maybe talking about his mother or if there was a crisis or his feelings for his brother, I just thought it was just absolutely an amazing performance by Larry Hagman and one of my all-time favorite characters. Well, I think that's why that's why that character from the, you know, the five-part miniseries, which is what it was supposed to be in the beginning. I think that's yes. why it caught on because, yes, he was a scoundrel and he would do anything he needed to do. The ends justify the means. That was <laughs> yes. in many ways who he was. But he really felt strongly about if, if, if someone didn't agree with him, if he had an argument with, with Bobby or one of the business people, it was like, can't you see it my way? It was always about mm -hmm. what, you know, convincing people to, to see that he was right and this needed to be done. But ultimately, yeah, he did care about his family. He just, he just you know, proceeded and made decisions in life that perhaps were not uh, you know, the most ethical or moral. But in his mind, it was because that's what he needed to do to, to move the company forward. In his mind, he thought he was honoring his, you know, Jock. He really his felt dad, that he was doing yes. what he could to to build this company and make it the empire that his father had wanted it to be. Um, you know, but there's also the other aspect of someone getting in the way. But when he, when he would talk about John Ross, you know, when he would talk about his son, when he would talk about his father, when he, when he would have heart-to-hearts with, you know, with, with Miss Ellie, there was definitely that side. I don't think you can attach emotionally to a character unless there is something about them that you can find yourself in. And I think that's what Patrick was a or excuse me, Larry was able to do very successfully. To have literally be the man people love to hate, you, there has to be something about them that draws you to them. Uh, and I think that was 
I think he was able to do in this series through this character. You know, so much of the, uh, it really, it really utilized his talents as an actor, I think, in a way that maybe no other role had allowed him to do. And, And he also was passionate about the success of the series. So that's why, you know, he, getting back to the Patrick coming back, I think Larry really missed Patrick and missed that sort of Cain and Abel, you know, <laughs> relationship going on, the, the sure. tension that it created, the storylines that it created. Uh, you know, the yin needs the yang, and, and I think he felt that that was missing. So, um, yeah, I, I, I think you're absolutely right. It, he was, it was a multidimensional. If it had been two-dimensional, after a while, it'd be like it's the same storyline over and over again. Yes. You know, well, even in his you, conflicts with Sue Ellen. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yes. Oh, the complexities go on and on. Uh, mm-hmm. I would also say that um, the impression that he left on me, uh, Deborah, is that J.R. Ewing was a big dreamer at heart. Uh, he lived oh, yes. and breathed Ewing oil. But I always mm-hmm. was fascinated that he, he was a dreamer. He, 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 he kept thinking of bigger and better things. And, you know, he had issues with controlling uh, his approach to yeah. achieving those dreams. <laughs> but I was always, I'm going to be honest, I was always inspired by that, that if you had a goal or something that you're passionate about, I mean, you go after it. And, um, and, and I was always fascinated the the, the big dreams that J.R. Ewing possessed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, no, I, I agree with you. And I think that's what kept people coming back to see where, you know, what, where the storyline would go with him next. Because it really was the driving force of, of many of the other storylines as well. So well, before sometimes we discuss- to his own detriment. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, yes. He would often get in his own way at times if he'd maybe mm-hmm. um, been well, a little more patient. Or re- Absolutely. But that's real life. I think that even in a dramatic setting, and certainly there were extreme stories. I mean, it's it's still yes. nighttime entertainment, okay? And it, it created an entire genre, uh, you know, uh, which is which I think is the remarkable thing, which is why you can use the word iconic. Um, but I, I really do think... Um, yeah, I agree with you that there still has to be some reality into it. And we and there are people like that. And we certainly know that, um, you know, there are people like that in, in the business world. It, he was a real and they were real family relationships and they were real family struggles, even if it was heightened reality. Well, that's an excellent description. Uh, thank you. And before I discuss um, the final moments of the series on CBS, just to get your your personal thoughts on that, when you think back and how you watched the magic between Larry Hagman and Ken Kershaw as Cliff Barnes. You know, you witnessed all kinds of moments, uh, and some of them were mm-hmm. rather intense because they would get in arguments inside the lobby area. I mean, numerous times. I was just wondering, mm-hmm. what is it like to kind of, uh, obviously you're in character, but just to watch two uh, on-screen rivals in the heat of the moment, Ken and Larry, oh, yes. their characters, that had to be really special to just be in, you know, a witness to that. Well, I think we, I think no matter who you are as an actor and how experienced you are or inexperienced, you always have something to learn and you always learn from watching two actors who are committed to, uh, to making a scene as powerful as it can be. And certainly, uh, you know, Larry and Ken Kershaw had, had the opportunity to, you know, have the writing. You have to have the writing to support you too. Do you know what I mean? We we had sure, some wonderful sure. writers. I so kudos to the people who created the words as well. 
um, and a lot of collaboration between in the, the main characters and, and the writers uh, and our wonder, all our many wonderful directors. So um, you, you, you're watching, you're in character, but you're still a pre, you can still appreciate as a fellow actor the work that's being done. And they were totally committed to making those scenes uh, as powerful as possible. So, yeah, it was, it's, to watch anybody do good work. And I, I mean, my gosh, there were so many wonderful actors, as you said, guest stars, uh, you know, uh, recurring characters, uh, you know, uh, stars of the series. I, I learned from all of them and I came to respect what each one of them brought something unique, not only in their character, but as an actor. And that's why a series works. That's why a show works. That's why good television or good theater, uh, uh, you know, when it works, that's the magic that happens is that everybody's Absolutely. equally committed to making it as, as powerful and as good as it can be, we, whether we it's keep comedy learning. or drama or whatever it is. That's we keep right. growing, we keep working. We never stop developing and, and, and learning. Wow. This is so true. We keep learning and um, it's just a, it's a part of the process. And uh, if you mm -hmm. tell yourself you've learned everything there is to know, no matter how successful you may have been, Deborah, it's going to come back to probably haunt you because you're not going to be prepared for any number of situations. You're not going to grow as a person if you stop, uh, you know, learning from others that you uh, surround yourself with or work with. And those are wonderful thoughts. Thank you. And I just thought I'd get your thoughts on something. The one thing that always intrigued me about Jr. was that he refused to give up. So if he got knocked down, and sometimes you really thought he would never get back up, he clawed his mm -hmm. way back. Um, <laughs> yes, it was evident. I mean, when just when you thought he would never be a part of Ewing Oil, or he'd never be able to outdo a, a rival, he found a way to do both. I think yes. what is rather disturbing to me, uh, but again, this is just dramatic television is that those final months of the show, you really did start to see the decline of J.R. Ewing and his power. Um, mm -hmm. And I think that for me personally, Deborah, I have no problem sharing this. You know, I got very teary-eyed during those final shots, not just because it was the end of the series, but to see J.R., although there would be the two-hour special the following week, but to see that next to last episode, so it's the next to last episode, the house is empty, um, he's distant with his brother Bobby, everybody's gone, and he lays on the bed and he pulls out Jock Ewing's pistol, his gun, mm -hmm. and he lays on the bed and for the first time it felt like, wow, J.R. Ewing might actually give up. I just thought that was a powerful moment on uh, from the show that doesn't get mentioned very much, but I really... Mm -hmm. um, well, it's his vulnerability. It's his You see his vulnerability. You you yes. see through the yes. layers to someone who uh, you know really has has come to has has no idea how to go forward. It doesn't see a way to go forward, and he always was yes. able to find a way, connive, scheme, whatever it was, uh, influence, blackmail, whatever it was, his way <laughs> to to getting what he wanted. And in a delicious way, of course, I mean, this is a fictional character. Um, but, but yeah, I think that was just a sheer vulnerability. He felt like every, he had lost everything. He, and he had at that point. And basically he had. lost everything. It, I'll tell you, it was quite an ending. And... I mean, even, 
even Phyllis told him that hell would have to freeze over before she'd ever work for him. I mean, if I didn't get, I, I didn't have any better parting words than that. I don't know. I mean, you know, even even Sly and Phyllis were leaving him. So <laughs> yes, I mean, if Phyllis and Sly are are doing that, then that tells you something right there, doesn't it? <laughs> well, Sly was get, Sly was getting married, and <laughs> mm-hmm. he asked me to stay, and I was like, no, no, not going to happen because remember, I was fiercely loyal to to Bobby and felt that he had done things that were very hurtful to him so that was where my loyalty led you know as as a character that's where my loyalty was so so loyal and I often did wonder if like we discussed earlier if the two characters would ever become romantically linked Um, I'm kind of glad that they didn't because I like the idea of having someone in your corner as much as Phyllis was well, and it and it doesn't always have to become that. I just, right. I personally just wish they had come up with ways for me to perhaps have become more uh, actively involved in in helping him, as opposed to just yes. you know being in the office fielding information and trying to get information. And those scenes where I would get to do that, you know, like kind of find out things or sort of you know spy and kind of you know try to figure out what was going <laughs> on to help him were always fun to me because it gave us gave us a little more meat you know to the, to the characters but yes i think it was important that you had that you had him that, that it was an honorable relationship i think that was important so it may have met less storylines and episodes but it also saved the sort of character and nature of the of the relationship kept it kept it you know um pure and i liked that I liked that because they were friends. They really did care about each other. And that, that's an important thing to have, too, uh, as far as yes. the storyline. And, well, and Patrick and I had a great relationship and had a lot of fun together, you know, off camera and working. And and uh, so that that was always, you know, that was always, uh, I think, evident, I, I hope, in our on-screen relationship. It sure was. Excellent chemistry between the two of you. Um, it was just like the perfect pair, the, the perfect fit. You know, Bobby and, well, and Phyllis. <laughs> and that was credited. Thank the, thank the writers. To <laughs> well, we'll thank the writers. They, they were wonderful. Well, as you know, Deborah, when you work on in theater and you do a musical or a play, you know, uh, there comes a time when it's over. And, um, and sure, you're feeling, you know, just so joyful from the experience. But, you know, with my experience as an actor, it's also can be a time of sadness because, you know, you're, you may not see some of these people for a while or at least a portion right. of them. And it's just knowing that that's over and it's on to the next mm-hmm. thing. But so it's what was that sweet. like for Dallas? Like like when it was over and you'd been there so many years, um, did you know it was canceled when you did the, you know, your last scene or were you hopeful it was coming you know, back? No, I... I honestly, I, I honestly cannot remember that I knew that I, I had, I, I think I was fairly certain that was my last episode. I see. Uh, you know, I guess there's always the hope that, you know, maybe even though they're, they're, they left it open, uh, you know, the final scene, they left that sort of open-ended with the, poss- I guess, with the possibility. But for me, as far as I knew, once I spoke those words, that was certainly it for me. I mean, for my character. Um yes. And I, I, I was pretty certain. I think they knew that they had run, that this show had run its course and it was, I mean, 14 years. So not bad. Um, not bad. But I think, <laughs> I think when you, when you reach a point where you realize what more can you do or say and, and you know, um, what, what storylines that if you hang on too long, then you don't serve the piece and serve the memory of the piece. But 
Um, yeah, it was very, you know, it was very sad. I mean, you know, Ken uh, Kershaw directed uh, the final episode and the final scenes, and and um, <clears throat> for 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 my character, for me and Deb, and uh, for Deb and and myself. And uh, it, it was, you know, knowing you were going the last time in hair and makeup and on the set and and working together. But you also know we also were all working on other projects. We were doing other things. We life would go on. But yes, we, you all know that when you're doing a series, you know, you everybody goes home every day. You know, we're not hanging out together. We everybody has their families and their lives and and their homes to go to. And you enjoy the time when you're together, but. You also know when it's time to move on, and and I knew that certainly the time had come for for my character, uh, to you know to move on. So yes, there's always that sadness. You know, a, a wrap parties when every season wraps. You know, it's you're happy that you've had another year, but it's always that uh, bittersweet. Same thing you said with theater. I mean, you get in theater even more so. You get very close very quickly, uh, and depending on how long the show runs, you know, when it ends, it's it you. You want to continue those relationships, but the reality is everybody goes on to the next thing. And uh, so you, I guess you, what you do is you just have to live in gratitude and, and cherish what you have had um, and carry that with you. And, and I think we all do. And, you know, unfortunately for, for some, it led to the revival uh, and being able to do you know, some work on the series and, uh, you know, recreate at least I was happy for, you know, Larry and Patrick and Linda um, that, that they were able to have some more years, uh, you know, in, in the embodying those characters. Well, me too. It was, it was so wonderful to have them all back, the Ewings and some of the Barnes and, and I really enjoyed the Dallas movies, the JR returns and war of the Ewings. I, I thought they were a lot of fun. Well, I think they had a, a kind of felt freedom with the movies in a way that yes. they didn't with the series because you have to follow, you know, you have a you have a Bible, as they say, you know, and you follow the Bible and you may make changes in it, but there has to be some kind of through line and some kind of, you know, continuity where with the film, it could be its own entity. Well, Deborah, I just uh, want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart for sharing all of your uh, cherished memories and personal stories of your time on Dallas and uh, thank you so very much. Oh, you're welcome. I think we could go on and on and on and on, but I'm not sure people want to hear us go on and on and on and on. <laughs> I, <laughs> well, I, think I just should come back someday. <laughs> well, I would. I would love to. There's there's still more stories to tell. So <laughs> oh, there sure is. We'll we'll do a part two, and we'll uh, continue everything um, next time when you come back. Um, you know, I would love to discuss other aspects of your. Uh, amazing career and uh, and I, I would enjoy sharing maybe some some new uh, uh, moments from uh, and questions from your time on Dallas so please please come back I will well I'm I continue to uh, do my music and my theater and television and film so there'll be other things to talk about and we can certainly continue to walk down memory lane with Dallas as well and I, I thank you so much for uh, for uh, reaching out to me and for us having the opportunity to talk to each other today. Well, thank you, Deborah. It's been an absolute delight. I've enjoyed every single moment. I could literally talk to you all day. And uh, <laughs> uh, so that's, that's something else. And well, I want to wish you luck on your uh, beautiful uh, singing voice and projects. And I look forward to your thank return you. already. All right. Thank you so much, Stephen. 
Well, and my final thoughts, uh, friends and listeners, is that Deborah Trinelli, my extra special guest today, is a prime example of doing what you love to do and giving it all you have. She is also an example that you don't always have to be top billing as an actor. You don't always have to be one of the main characters to have an impact on an audience. For when you think of Bobby Ewing, you can't help but think of Phyllis. And that's all due to a lady who gave her role all that she had to offer. And that would be Deborah Trinelli. I'll see all of you on another episode of Hollywood and Beyond. Thank you. Please, don't try to change my mind. I love him, and I want to be with him. I'm sorry I have to leave you in oil. Yeah, I'm sorry too. I'm going to miss you. Um, take a long honeymoon, charge it to me. <sighs> Thanks, JR. I'm going to miss you too. I mean, if there was any other way. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're going to have to show Phyllis how things work around here. Better call her in. Okay. Might as well start now, I suppose. <laughs> Phyllis? Oh, Phyllis? It looks like it's just you and me now. There's a whole bunch of things you're going to have to learn. I don't think so. What? I work for Bobby, JR, and only Bobby. Well, Bobby doesn't work for this company. Well, then I guess neither do I. What? JR, I've been waiting to tell you this for a long time. Hell would have to freeze over before I'd ever work for you. Mm.